2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, another big week coming for bank earnings. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where the Prime Minister and the Bank
3: of England will be hoping there won't be another unpleasant inflation surprise in store. I'm Brian Curtis
4: in Hong Kong. We look ahead to Tesla's earnings and the company's progress in China.
5: I'm Kaylee Lyons in Washington, where we're getting ready for Congress to come back to the Capitol after a two-week recess. Watch for fireworks when they return.
6: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app.
2: Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with all the first quarter bank earnings that began this past Friday and continue in the coming week. Bloomberg Wall Street reporter Shanali Basik joining me now for some insight. Hello, Shanali. Hi there. All right. Well, let's start with some of the good news that we heard on Friday, particularly upside earning surprises from the biggies, Morgan Chase and Citigroup.
7: Yeah, there were a few things. For J.P. Morgan in particular, not only did they beat on revenue, they also had some really interesting items within different lines of the banks. So for example, they said they were going to make billions of dollars more in net interest income than was initially expected. Another thing that happened, though, was that they beat on fixed income trading, and so you also saw an institutional business do very well here relative to what was expected. That was similar for Citigroup as well. Remember, the markets are still very volatile, so the fact that they're still making money from institutional clients are a big deal, as we watch some of the cracks in the market and how they affect both the consumer and institutional clients.
2: Now, speaking of those cracks, Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon told investors, you can count the number of troubled banks on your hands. What so, does that tell us?
7: You know, nobody wants to be in a banking crisis, or you can use what Mohammed Alarian would say, and he says it's a banking tremor, not a banking crisis. And even with the struggles we're seeing with the likes of Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of questions still around First Republic, what J.P. Morgan and Citigroup are telling you that this is fairly contained. Now, J.P. Morgan banks hundreds of banks in America as well. There are more than 4,000 of them. And there's a consensus here among even the largest banks, which have benefited a lot from this kind of banking tremor, crisis, whatever you want to call it, the thing here is, those regional banks are really what touches a lot of America. They have a lot of exposure to commercial real estate, for example, small businesses, which uh, employ a lot of the American economy. So if those regional banks face a lot of pressure, which is really what we're going to see the bulk of in terms of the earnings cycle the next couple of weeks, there could be ripple effects to any pains those banks, the smaller banks would feel.
2: And in the earnings that we, that we just had on Friday... Do we see the movement of a lot of money, a lot of deposits coming out of those regional banks and into the biggies?
7: It was most notable at JP Morgan where they supposed uh, they posted a surprise increase in deposits. They had been de- drawing down for uh, the last couple of quarters here because interest rates are still very high, people are moving into money market funds instead. JP Morgan is telling you that don't expect this kind of increase in deposits to continue, even what they took in in the wake of kind of the Silicon Valley Bank issue they say that these are not necessarily sticky deposits. They can go out the door just as easily as they've come in. Of course, we don't worry about deposits at J.P. Morgan. You know, I want to say that their deposit base is probably bigger here than the GDP of France. It's $2.37 trillion. We're talking about in deposits at J.P. Morgan. But again, you know, does that deposit movement cause fragilities in the smaller banks? That's where it becomes more of a question.
2: Now, I want to touch on something you spoke about, and that is higher interest rates and how these banks benefited from the what's it been nine in a row of increases from the Federal Reserve, and maybe one or two more to come.
7: The interesting thing about this is that if you look at Citigroup and if you look at JP Morgan, a lot of this is coming from their credit card portfolios. So they're really getting more because people are borrowing more from on their credit card debt. That's not the same, by the way, as we know, for a lot of the regionals and for Wells Fargo, which is more heavily tilted towards, for example, the mortgage market, which has been facing a lot of pressures in this higher interest rate environment
2: oh yeah and 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 we just saw speaking of credit cards, uh, retail sales dipping uh, last, last month, but still, it's it's a big pot that, you know, we're spending a lot of money, Americans. So.
7: And it makes total sense. You see them in the bank numbers also. You see card spending up at, at these banks. How long that continues for, remember a couple times this year Jamie Dimon has said that the consumer will start to hit a cliff at the end of this year. So you have Citigroup saying that you can expect kind of a soft or shallow recession, if you will, maybe in the second half of this year. But then you also have to take into account what Jamie Diamond at JP Morgan has said about the uncertainties that bacon into 2024, into next year. So we're talking about a long horizon of uncertainty here.
2: So that, so despite you know the the upbeat earnings, they are very cautious. They are being cautious. They are telling investors it's not over yet.
7: Certainly not. And even in their numbers alone, you see them really preparing with higher provisions for credit losses, um, even higher charge offs. The ninety day delinquency rate on, for example, JP Morgan's credit card book has ticked a little higher. They're well below, you know, levels we've seen that would be considered alarming. They're well below that. JP Morgan calls it a normalization. We're getting it back to more normal levels. You're gonna get more losses as you're lending more. But all in all, I mean JP Morgan is very profitable. In fact, in terms of revenue, they just had a record quarter. So, that is pretty incredible, considering all the worries that we had gone into the quarter with.
6: Right.
2: And now, the the cavalcade of earnings continues this coming week, and we hear from some, the rest of the biggies, a lot of the regional banks, even the small ones. So, what are we expecting to hear from Bank of America, from Goldman Sachs, from... Morgan Stanley.
7: On the Bank of America front, I think it'll be interesting to see what they say on net interest income, given that they're such a big lender to the American economy. Do they say the same things as J.P. Morgan, that they expect more? Remember, Citigroup didn't really change their outlook for the year. And also, J.P. Morgan and Citigroup in particular, their headcount has risen over the past year. How about Bank of America? Wages have risen, also, so we know that expenses tied to pay are rising. But how much can banks really take on with that much uncertainty ahead? There's also Schwab on Monday. Remember, Schwab will be very interesting because they've had a large sell-off. They, uh, you know, are very concerned, or their investors rather, are concerned about people moving from deposits to money market funds. It's not a question of viability of the firm necessarily. It's a question of profitability and what will cause more pressures at a place like Schwab. You also have Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley in the coming days after that. Like I said, the institutions' investment in banking fees are way down, but Goldman in particular, if they find the same fixed income trading figures or beats that J.P. Morgan and Citigroup had, you know, and their bankers are just fine. Let's put it that way.
2: Now, some of the others, though, that uh, have truest is one that we just heard news from them last week fifth third keycorp some of the yeah. second level or third yes. level of yes. banks and and are we seeing a similar thing that's what you talked about the ones that are the regional banks that are really vital to smaller communities this is
7: where it gets so stressful the big banks this quarter they're very easy stories more or less but the regional banks Line by line, number by number. If I take a look, PNC all through Friday had been kind of up and down in the stock market. Uh, they, they were up, they were down. And remember, they, they were stable in their actual numbers. When you looked at the deposit flows, they actually did better than what Wall Street had expected. So do we see the same from M&T and and Third and all of these other regionals? Or did they, for whatever reason, face stiffer um, outputs and deposits from their clients? you know PNC is based in Pittsburgh some of them some people say that these are regional differences it tended to be a lot of the california banks people were concerned about uh, the concentration in some of those you know first republic and silicon valley bank kind of stories and their their balance sheets but do you see those same pressures really start to come across from the client base at least from a lot of these regionals and then you have to add the other question of what do their loan books look like which is another Question that will continue to be a, a, a worry throughout the year is if you're worried about credit quality deteriorating.
2: And some of those regional banks obviously may be on Jamie Dimon's list. Uh, you know, we saw wild fluctuations at PacWest, a big lender in the Los Angeles area. Mm. You know, which uh, it could be spillover from Silicon Valley Bank. But uh, do we have any idea what some of these, where some of these banks are, or which banks he may be referring to?
7: Uh, which ones? No. And you don't want to say them either because you don't want to cause any alarm. But, you know, it's interesting. You named PacWest. Something interesting about PacWest was one thing they did to kind of cool down the market was they said that they, um, instead of going out to the market and raising money, they got essentially, you know, a credit facility from a private Firm named Atlas SP. This is a firm that was started by Apollo in the wake of Credit Suisse, and they basically lent the money against a series of assets to weather the storm. And so, you know, we could see more deals like that. It was a very interesting deal that I know that a lot of investors wanted to model, and it also showed you another thing that if if these banks want to tap the capital markets, if they want to raise money, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank happened. That, that wasn't possible. The market was closed to these banks. But now they're finding other folks, comes at a cost, but they could raise money to make it through this difficult environment if they need to. An
2: alternative means of raising money
7: yeah. from the past.
2: Thank you, Shanali. That was Bloomberg Wall Street reporter Shanali Basic. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend in the UK, some key data coming our way ahead of the Bank of England's next interest rate decision. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see
1: it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program... Watch for a lot of drama as members of Congress get ready to return to Capitol Hill. But first, in the UK, we'll get some key data in the coming days which will factor into the Bank of England's next interest rate decision. Like the Fed, the UK central bank is thought to be close to ending its hiking cycle, although the economic situation in Britain does look quite different now for more let's head to london and bring in bloomberg daybreak europe anchor stephen carroll stephen tom the prime minister
3: rishi sunak named having the rate of inflation as one of his five key priorities for this year he'll be hoping that the cpi print for march starts to show that trend after we had a surprise Uptake to 10.4% in February. To discuss this and some more of the data points we'll be unpacking from the UK in the coming days, I'm joined by Bloomberg's senior UK economist Dan Hansen and our UK correspondent Lizzie Burden is in studio with us as well. Um, Dan, this February CPI number was a shocker. Uh, remind us what drove that.
8: Yeah, so we had we had a pickup in a little, well, quite a big pickup, actually, the surprises in core goods inflation, so clothing and footwear, and also in food um, inflation as well. They were the sources of surprises. Um, and it, we we were expecting a reading of 9.9%. It came in 10.4%. The Bank of England was expecting a reading of 9.9%. So you're right, it was a big surprise. Um, looking ahead, um, I think it will probably be seen as a blip. Um and there are sort of two parts of this. One part is you're just going to get these what economists call base effects. So these, these, effect, these big price rises last year falling out of the annual comparison. And that's going to be part of the story in March. It's going to become a more significant story Um, In April and later in the year, when we get the falls, uh, the rises in uh, gas prices falling out of the annual comparison. But I think looking looking to the March number, we're going to we think we're going to see a drop back from 10.4%. We actually think we're going to fall a little bit beneath
3: 10%. So it looks like it's going to be a temporary blip, the February figure. Okay. And you mentioned energy prices there, of course, one of the big drivers that pushed inflation up to these levels um in, in the end towards the end of last year. Where is inflation looking stickier now, or where within the detail of the numbers should we be thinking about?
8: Yeah, so I mean this is this is I mean, it goes to the Bank of England's thinking as well. So you've got you've got this you're right, you've got this energy component. And over the course of this year, if wholesale energy prices stay where they are at the moment over the course of this year, you're going to get about 4.5 percentage points off the headline rate of inflation. So you're at 10.4 at the moment. That's going to get you to 6, partly mechanically through base effects, partly because we've had this fall in gas price, wholesale gas prices since the start of the year. Where the stickiness then comes, I think there are actually two bits of it. One is, is services inflation, and that's what the bank has said it's very focused on. But actually, what what has probably been a bit stickier than most, including us, uh, um, have expected is the good side of the basket and where the um, the supply chain disruption really... Was the source of that inflation, but actually it hasn't come down as quickly as we'd been expecting, or nor the Bank of England has been expecting. So there is some stickiness there, which is cause for concern. But I think the really key area to watch in terms of persistence and going to your question is services and services inflation, which again jumped
3: back up in in February. Um, it, it, we think it's going to ease slightly in in March. I mentioned Rishi Sunak's promise of having inflation by the end of the year. Your colleague uh, Jamie Rush succinctly put it that you could put a suckling pig in charge of the economy, and inflation would still fall by half by the end of the year. How does the picture look a little bit further out uh, in terms of inflation?
8: Well, Jamie's got a much better way of
3: words. than me. <laughs> I think he was a bit embarrassed after he said it. Actually,
8: <laughs> oh, he should be. No, it's not not very becoming. But um, look, it, I think I think he's going to get he's going to meet his target. So. I think Jamie's right. You're going to get there um, predominantly through these base effects, mm. as we've as we've mentioned. Um, but I think there's going to be there is going to be somewhat of a slowdown in other components. So I think core goods will continue to ease in terms of inflation. There, food inflation I think will come off a little bit. It's it's extremely high at the moment, and it's probably going to pick up again in the uh, in the March report. But I think it's going to come off. And on our forecast, you get to three percent by the end of the year, um, headline inflation. But I think what that masks is core inflation, which we think is gonna end the year about four and a half percent, so significantly higher. And that again reflects this mainly reflects services inflation, but also what I mentioned on the good side as well.
3: Another piece of the economic puzzle that we're going to learn more about next week is the labour market. We've got jobs data out. The UK's had a particular problem with participation um, post the pandemic as well. Are we likely to see any improvement on that front?
8: So I think what, what you're going to see from the jobs the jobs data is a steady unemployment rate. So this, this has been a bit of a theme this year of the economy doing a little bit better, the labour market staying a little bit tighter than people thought and not cooling as quickly. Um... But the sort of the the interesting side of this is how quickly wage growth seems to be cooling so if you look on if you look at the headline measures of wage growth, we think um, private sector regular pay is going to fall from seven percent to six and a half percent which is a big a big drop down but actually if you look on an underlying basis so the the headline measures are year on year three months moving average it takes a long time for the numbers to sort of cool and fall off but if you look at sort of um, more um, timely and time that's a more timely picture of the uh the underlying wage picture it's actually it's actually calling very quickly now that's obviously not consistent with a, a tight what you would expect in a tight labor market and with expectations inflation expectations pay expectations up at sort of five percent mark at least in the near term but there is a story there that it that is really important particularly for the for the bank of england and that's something that we're going to be be really focused on in the in the next um, jobs release
3: Yeah, Lizzie Burton, you've been waiting patiently to... uh to listening into this conversation as well, but I know a story that you've been following is that the change in the makeup of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee won't affect the next meeting. Um, but tell us about Megan Green, who's joining the MPC.
9: Yeah, well, not the meeting after that. It's uh, the replacement for Silvana Tenreiro. She is currently Global Chief Economist at the Kroll Institute. She's got a background in financial services, also in academia. Uh, and, you know, it's a difficult, delicate moment to be joining the MPC because uh, we're nearing the end of the tightening cycle. You've had 11 straight hikes so far and this debate currently is between Silvana Tenreiro, who Green's replacing, and Swati Dingra at the dovish end and then at the hawkish end of the spectrum, Catherine Mann, about whether it's time to pause, as Dan says. Um, Dan, I noted putting a foot in both camps, whether it's going to be a a hold or a uh, hike. Um, But fortunately, Megan Green is a regular on Bloomberg TV and radio, so we've had a bit of an insight into her her thoughts already. Uh, recently, she said that she's concerned about the impact of tightening monetary policy on the banking system. And she said it more in the context of the US, but it's very applicable in the UK as well, because of course, we've had the fallout of Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank. And um, This was a question that was raised around the last meeting at the Bank of England. Have financial conditions tightened so much that the work of the Bank of England has been done for it? Uh, and so it's interesting that she has already had this view out there um, and given her financial services background we know that she's very aware of it.
3: How will her appointment affect the balance then on the committee?
9: I mean it's hard I think as Dan's uh, colleague Anna noted to be more Dovish than Silvana Tenreiro. Uh, she's voted to hold at the past three meetings. She's even been talking about cutting rates uh, before she leaves the committee. So it seems that this appointment can be nothing but a tilt to the hawkish side, no matter how Dovish uh, Megan Green may be. But the reality is she isn't going to take her seat until two meetings time. As I say, the hiking cycle could be over by then. Um, more interesting, perhaps, for... Our UK listeners then is her open criticism of Brexit mm. on Twitter, and um, she she might have to rein that in uh, if she joins the now that she's joining the MPC.
3: Okay, Lizzie Burden, thank you very much, our UK correspondent, and our senior UK economist Dan Hanson as well. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning
2: at six a.m. in London and one a.m. on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, could be a contentious week on Capitol Hill, and we'll tell you why. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
6: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 99.1, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend.
2: Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. A lot of travel this weekend for many senators and representatives as they make their way back to Capitol Hill. After more than two weeks of spring and Easter break, the House and Senate will be back this week for what could be a tense session. Now, for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On host Kaylee Lines. Kaylee?
5: Thanks, Tom. That's right. Guess who's back? Back again. Almost. Congress is going to get back to work here in Washington next week after a two week hiatus around the Easter and Passover holidays. But as we well know, there are a lot of issues that Republicans and Democrats don't agree on. So there remains a question of how much work really Can get done. We're joined now by Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins for a look at the top priorities as we get back to business on the Hill. And Emily, I say the Hill and I'm talking about lawmakers being back in D.C., but actually, we're going to start the week with one key lawmaker in New York House Speaker Kevin McCarthy getting set to give a speech at the New York Stock Exchange at 10 a.m. on Monday. Why?
10: So I think with the debt limit coming up, it is certainly the biggest news in Washington. And I think McCarthy is really trying to make that clear connection to Wall Street and to Washington to say, hey, look, this thing's coming up. Republicans are going to hold firm. We absolutely demand that spending be cut. And that's the only way that we're going to move a deal forward. So this is him kind of doing a little bit of expectation setting, Uh, really kind of think going up to Wall Street, because sometimes I think Wall Street and D.C. don't always communicate as well as they could with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think McCarthy is really trying to make a statement here by delivering this speech up in New York. Um, At the same point, you know, we learned last week that Republicans are planning on putting out a more detailed debt limit proposal. Uh, It'll be packed with conservative priorities. We certainly don't think that this is going to be the thing that actually winds up raising the debt limit. But Republicans say, hey, we're going to put something together. We'll put it out there. And then the ball is in the White House's court. They really want Biden and Kevin McCarthy to sit down again and begin negotiating. And the White House said, hey, if you want to negotiate, we we need an actual plan. And so this is the Republicans working to deliver on that.
5: OK, so maybe, maybe a first step forward. I will bring the focus to Washington specifically, Emily, I promise. But we have to talk about the other thing that's going to happen in New York. Also at the beginning of the week, Jim Jordan and House Judiciary Republicans holding a field hearing in Manhattan talking in theory about the crime policies of District Attorney Alvin Bragg. But this is basically about the Trump indictment, right?
10: This is absolutely about the Trump indictment. Alvin Bragg was not something that Jim Jordan was interested in uh, before the indictment came down. And this is really what Republican strategy has been in terms of how they are addressing the fact that one of the leading nominees uh, for their party's presidential candidate is currently under the process of, of being indicted. And so, with that, they've they've really honed in on Alvin Bragg. They've really honed in on his policies. And it's also interesting to note, Kaylee, the strategy that Republicans have taken up of doing these field hearings. This is a thought that Republicans have had, sort of making sure that they are going out to various communities and places around the country that they're kind of getting face time with voters. That they're able to have these events. This is kind of a way that you know Republicans they're not going to be able to move a lot of their priorities through with a Democratic Senate and. Of Biden in the White House, and so this is a way for them to kind of, almost in a way, hit the campaign trail early. And of course, New York is absolutely key for Republicans. Republicans would not have the majority that they have right now if a number of Republicans representing New York had flipped seats. And so it's really a key state for them. Um, it's not surprising that that they picked to go there. Um, and certainly, with Alvin Bragg, that plays right into the narrative that Republicans are trying to push, which is kind of lots of a focus on on what. Trump did and more of a focus on what Alvin Bragg has done and whether or not uh, he should have pressed those charges to begin with.
5: Okay, so if the House Judiciary Committee is focused on Alvin Bragg and the the Trump issue, let's talk about what the Senate Judiciary Committee may be focused on as well and whether or not that really translates uh, to the House while Congress was away, the ProPublica piece on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Tomek's ethics around uh, him and his dealings with a, a billionaire, we know that the Senate Judiciary is saying they want to hold hearings about it. They are highly uh, engaged with this, it seems, but the House is under different leadership. So could anything really happen there?
10: I'm not really sure we're going to see a big focus on this in the House Republicans have plenty of other things that they'd like to focus on at this point in time. Um, And I just don't really see what motivation, if any, they would have. Now, certainly that kind of when we're talking in terms of hearings uh, and official legislation moving on the floor, I would not be surprised at all if Democrats tried to make this a talking point, if you saw them reintroduce legislation uh, that deals with transparency and reporting uh, for judges in terms of what donations they're getting, uh, you know, kind of trying to bring some more transparency there. That was something that was discussed in the previous Congress. It didn't wind up uh, moving through, partly because there are just so many other priorities at this point. Uh, But it certainly could be something that we wind up hearing more about. I just think at this time, between the debt limit, between security, between nominees that need to go through the Senate, uh, j- between just other issues in general, this is one that I can easily see falling through the cracks.
5: Yeah, it, it's a very good point on how there's all these competing priorities here, potentially. But it strikes me as well, Emily, that uh, the piece about Clarence Thomas was just one of the real kind of news-making events that happened while we while Congress was on recess. You also had a meeting between McCarthy and Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-Wang. You had another mass shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. You had the expelling of lawmakers in the Tennessee House, who of course now have uh, returned. There has been so many things, including competing court rulings on abortion pills as well. Is any of that likely to get immediate attention in Congress or are these bigger overarching issues that have been hanging over their heads for a while going to take priority?
10: I think at this point, when we look at what we know that the House and Senate are going to be handling next week, they're kind of almost picking up where they left off several weeks ago. So these are things where in the House they're planning on doing a vote on a bill about transgender student athletes, uh, trying to ban them from playing uh, sports in schools that receive federal funding, or at least, you know, not on the, on. it would have to be to the team. To the gender that they were born born rather than the gender that that they identify as, and you know that's something that you know isn't really you know, one of the big things that happened over the last two weeks. I mean, we know that the Senate is going to be holding some hearings on trained derailment bills. They still have to mm-hmm. deal with that from a, from a couple months ago. Um, and we know that they're taking a look at authorization for military funding. So a lot of this stuff, I think sometimes with with the House and the Senate and just Congress in general, it takes a while to get up and running, especially uh, since everyone wants to go through regular orders. So they hold the hearings and the bills go through committees and then they come to the floor, it just takes a little bit of time. So I don't think we we can count out that we're not going to be seeing or hearing anything about some of these issues. I think particularly uh, in terms of the... My- of a Pristone pill, uh, the pill that is used in some medically induced abortions, that might be something that we well see taken up uh, by Democrats in the Senate and potentially becomes a, a rallying point uh, for Democrats in the House as well. Uh, but just in terms of what we're going to see with the next couple of weeks, I think, you know, the, the priorities that were already on the plate are going to be big. And I, I think, of course, the debt limit, too. You know, if Republicans mm-hmm. are serious that they want to move something within the coming month, they have vowed to do so via regular order. That's going to take a couple weeks to get legislation together, move it through the process, get it to the floor, do the amendments like that. That's really going to have to be their their main focus okay. rather than a number of the news events that we've seen.
5: But on the subject of the debt limit, Emily, I mean, really, we're not quite at crunch time in theory, right? If we're talking about an ex date in the summer. So does that take some of the pressure off or is this just self-inflicted pressure now
10: I think to a certain extent some of the pressure is not on yet and I wonder if that's kind of why McCarthy is headed up to New York when he is because Mm. Congress they love to move at the last minute they love to move on a deadline but McCarthy knows, and I think Biden knows, that that's not great. That when we've moved too close to the deadline in the past on raising the debt limit, that's when the U.S. credit sort of gets gets hit and gets impacted.
5: All right, Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government, thank you so much. We're excited for the next week coming up here in Washington, Tom, and I'll send it back over
2: to you. Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thanks, Kaylee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend tesla's coming earnings and how elon musk's company is faring in china i'm tom busby and this is Bloomberg. this is bloomberg daybreak weekend our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week i'm tom busby in new york Some of the focus is going to be on Tesla's earnings and the company's big opportunities and challenges in China. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his
4: colleague Doug Krisner. Tom, we look forward to Tesla's earnings in the coming week, with at least part of the focus on China. The numbers and the commentary from executives will be coming after a slew of recent developments involving the company.
6: Yes, we've seen big price cuts by Tesla and its competitors. We've also seen relentless gains in the share price of Tesla. And recently, the announcement of a new Megapack battery plant
4: in Shanghai. Now, this will build cells for grid-scale energy storage. In addition, the Biden administration is in the process of rolling out the toughest ever curbs in the United States on car pollution. Joining us now is Dana Hull, senior reporter in San Francisco covering Tesla and its chief, Elon Musk. So, Dana, Doug mentioned the price cuts and the stock price gains there. Trying to put those two together on the one hand the cuts make the cars more competitive and more affordable particularly in places like China but then on the other hand it speaks to perhaps weaker demand how badly will these price cuts hit margins
11: the fact that they've cut prices you know so much in the first quarter and then again just last Thursday does kind of spook people about the demand question like how much farther are they going to go down and if you're a consumer thinking of buying a Tesla, I mean, are you going to buy one now or are you going to wait to see if they lop mm. off another one or $5,000? I mean, that's a, that's sort of a big question for, for the consumer. Like, uh, why, you know, I don't want to buy a car if, if Elon Musk is going to turn around and cut the prices again next
6: week. One of the things that was also interesting in this note that I read is that the move here on the part of Tesla may be about expediting the demise of gasoline vehicles. And when I read that, I was reminded of what happened with some of these ride-sharing companies where they were purposely undercutting the market for taxis as a way of pushing them out of business.
11: Yeah, I mean, when when you're aggressively chasing volume, you will pull out all the stops to kind of gain as many customers as you can. And, you know, the policy incentives are on Tesla's side. I mean, the world is transitioning away from gas powered cars tesla doesn't make a gas powered car so there's only sort of upside from for for them and you know at their investor day in march they made a huge show of how they're going to relentlessly focus on costs across their supply chain in their operations and you know th- their average transaction price has been kind of go- you know coming down over the years and they and they really feel like that's the path that they're on, and it's a part of their whole mission.
4: I mentioned China in the intro. BYD is outselling a Tesla in China. How's that competition going?
11: Certainly, BYD is a formidable competitor in China, and you're seeing Tesla cut prices in China as well. Um, I mean, Tesla does have kind of this aspirational brand allure in in the country, and the fact that they just announced that they're building this Megapack facility in Shanghai is, is a sign that they're really kind of doubling down on their investment.
4: We did see some political pressure coming from Mike Gallagher, the congressman, uh, on Tesla and its commitment to China. You mentioned that commitment earlier uh, with this Megapack factory. Uh, is that something that um, investors will be paying close attention to, or, or not so much?
11: Yeah. The Gallagher's comment was that he was concerned. I don't know how much pressure that really you know, hold. But China has always been a big part of Tesla's business model. And they just announced that Tom Zhu, who kind of led operations in China, is now an executive officer.
4: Dana, we mentioned the pollution curbs coming from the Biden administration. What can you tell us on that front?
11: It's great for Tesla. I mean, you have a Biden administration that is trying to accelerate EV adoption. Then you have Tesla, which is like the pure player EV car maker. There's There's sort of only there's only upside from policies kind of designed to accelerate
6: this. Dana, thanks for helping us look at Tesla as we prepare for the earnings in the coming week. Dana Hall is senior reporter in San Francisco covering Tesla and Elon Musk. I'm Doug Krisner, along with Brian Curtis. He's in Hong Kong, and you can catch us weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend.
2: Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines coming up right now.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
5: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis